0: Have you ever heard of this new term I see around popping up here called rewilding? Rewilding is an environmentalist term. It means letting nature speak for itself before you tame the life out of it. It means letting the wild animals back in. It means letting things grow on their own. It's an environmental term primarily, but I was thinking about it when I was meditating on our gospel text today. There are so many new words and ideas coming at us so fast in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. If we have been in church for a while and read the Gospels a few times, we may think we know what these words and ideas mean, but I'm not the only one who finds it a little bit bewildering. It's kind of like that Matrix movie where that guy's kind of like dodging all those bullets coming at him like this, you know. What do these words mean? What is Logos or Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Or what is Messiah or Christ or what is a rabbi? What does it mean that John might have been Elijah? Why was John in the desert to begin with? What is baptism? Why do they do it? What is a disciple exactly? I mean, you know, I've... Study this stuff a lot and I find myself really not knowing exactly what those things mean or presuming that I do. In fact, it isn't really obvious what a lot of this stuff means. So if when you read these things and you think to yourself, I don't even know what he's talking about, you know, yeah, there's a reason for that. So if we just listen with dutiful obligation and try to apply something to my life, I'm not going to get very far with that kind of approach. So I want us to just rewild it a little bit. Let's allow the strangeness of the words and the unfamiliar symbols, let's just allow them to exist for a minute. Let's let them be strange and unfamiliar. Let's see what happens to our experience of reading this text, rewild it a little bit. Perhaps our first obligation in experiencing a text like this isn't to try to figure it out at all. John, the master storyteller, I think, is winking at us a little bit in the reader when he quotes Jesus and the disciples saying to one another, come and see, as if to say, so you have questions, you're curious, I can do something about that. I think he's saying to us as readers, hey, come and see. That's how we approach this text. Talk about wilding, here's a guy who lives out in the desert and dresses in camel hair and eats bugs. that's pretty wild. And he says, there's a guy coming that's even wilder than me. Now that's the Steve Engstrom Message Bible translation. (laughs) John brings out all kinds of terms into the story to try and describe Jesus and Some of them may have been familiar to the people, but not all of them. It's not just that we find them unfamiliar. They did too. At the time, now, there was a very intense focus on what God might be doing in Israel to address promises he made to them in the past. So it's true. There is a lot of tinder, uh, a lot of kindling wood in the culture at that time. Wasn't Israel supposed to do great things and be great? Wasn't Israel supposed to be a nation that demonstrated the amazing power of God? Wasn't Israel supposed to be free from oppression so that that might fulfill their destiny? Wasn't God going to send some some special agent to his people? Wasn't God going to separate out the evil from the good and judge? Wasn't God going to establish peace People were talking about this a lot. There are all kinds of poems and stories and metaphors and prophecies that kind of poked around all of these things. And there wasn't necessarily uniformity around all of the ways that the Jewish people were engaging with these things, but they were asking this sort of stuff. So John the Storyteller, as opposed to John the Baptist, I know this is going to get a little confusing. So John the Storyteller, the Gospel writer, starts coaxing his readers into this swirl of meaning and expectation. Yep, God is going to do something just like we thought he would, but he's not going to do it exactly the way that we thought he was going to do it. Well, what do we expect from God? John the storyteller whets our appetite in the first chapter. We don't even know Jesus' name until verse 17, even though it's all about him. What we get first is logos and life and light and glory and father and son. Ha. Then we have to hang on again until verse 29 when Jesus enters with a splash, literally, in his baptism, and we hear God's voice and we see the Spirit descend like a dove. It's pretty wild stuff. Then, all of a sudden, we see Jesus connecting with people and it's so ordinary. It's kind of like, John the Baptist and his disciples are kind of sitting at the lunch table and they see Jesus walk by and John says, hey, that guy's cool, you should kind of check him out. Mm -hmm. And they do, these two guys. And Jesus doesn't rant and rave, he just turns, which must have been very exciting for these two guys following him, and he says, what are you looking for? Now, that turns out to be a very important interaction. If we are familiar with the story already of the gospel, we know that Jesus is about to gather 12 special people called disciples. What is a disciple? I mean, we use this word all the time in the Christian culture discipleship, you know, cost of discipleship, becoming a disciple. But it's really actually not quite an easy answer, uh, quite an easy question to answer. There's actually very little written at the time about disciples. There's no mention of disciples in the Old Testament. I mean, there's an example, an important one, which may lie behind the idea between Elijah and Elisha. Right. So if you want to know where the idea may have come from, that, that's a good place to start. But it's not like there's some culture of discipleship in the Old Testament. There's actually not a lot of discipleship in Jewish literature at the time. So, like, if you look outside of the New Testament to other things being written at that time, not a lot of discipleship. There's not that much from Greco-Roman culture. Yes, they had schools, but they were very different than disciples. So, this idea of what is the disciples kind of coming together, and it seems like John and Jesus are doing something a little creative, Jesus especially so, as usual. It seems like John's disciples sort of seek him out. So John's got disciples, but they they seem to like go where he is. Here's what Jesus does different. He seeks out his disciples. I mean, it's not something to take for granted. You know, you'd think it'd be the other way around. A disciple, you know, a rabbi is out there being important. And of course, he wants people to kind of come and seek him. Jesus is upside down as usual doing it the other way around, and he's out there seeking his disciples. And he's asking them to follow him completely. These aren't people that go home at night. Jesus is asking them to give it all up, to leave their families, to leave their jobs, to leave their financial stability, to leave their reputation, And if tradition holds for most of the disciples, their very lives. Most of them did not live long lives, as far as we know. Boy, sign me up. (laughs) You can see why Jesus took this so seriously. It was not an easy call. And it wasn't a call for everyone in the same way. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. Jesus doesn't ask the same thing of every person. Read, for example, if you're curious about this, read Paul's letter to Timothy. What does he tell Timothy? Tell your elders, stay at home and work, take care of your families, and live peacefully with your neighbors. That's very different than what Jesus asked of his disciples. So when we're talking about the cost of discipleship, let's be careful about what God is asking you to do. He's asking his 12 a lot. Timothy was asking his congregation members a lot, but just different. So are we all supposed to be disciples? Yes, there's a general call. But Jesus is doing something very specific with these 12, and I'll get more into that in a minute. It's just that. I don't want to race by the interaction with Jesus and these 12 guys because he's very, very intentional about it. These are special people. In fact, I love, in our passage now that that we read this morning, starting with verse 43 of John chapter 1, Jesus decides to go. I like that. I like any window into Jesus' inner world, because it's exciting. That might seem normal, oh, he decided to do something. But no, this is about Jesus. And more literally, uh, the Greek there is that he desires to go. He wants to go sort of interesting because Galilee was not known as being a special place in Israel. It's kind of humble, less educated. It's like kind of flyover state. But that's where he wants to start his ministry. And that's where he wants to find certain people. So it wasn't that Philip finds Jesus, but that Jesus finds Philip. I like that. And he's very simple about it. He just says, hey, follow me like didn't say hey and i just insert it in the so it's just simple and direct and it's very easy to imagine now philip was from the same town as andrew and peter so in the passage just before this one right uh back where john the baptist was we have andrew and simon <laughs> brothers okay now Andrew and Philip, they're all from the same hometown. Now, we know Andrew from the prior passage, he's the sort of guy that was motivated to be John's disciple. So that says a lot about him. Maybe it says a lot about their hometown. Andrew was so excited about Jesus that he told his brother Simon, and then Simon ends up with a new name and a new life. (laughs) So, maybe there's something about this village that energizes these young men. Philip had something in mind, that's for sure, because he finds Nathaniel and he says, A mouthful. We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus, the son of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Whoa, slow down. You can see there's a lot going on in Philip's mind, just like there is in Andrew. It does not take him a lot to get the engine started. So whatever's going on. Meeting Jesus was like setting a match to the fire. These Jewish guys, these young Jewish men, they had been prepared by their culture with a hunger to see God act. These were young men. And at that precise moment, he did. And it all came together when Jesus just looked into their eyes and said their name and called them to join him. That's all they knew. And that's all it took. It wasn't a lot of data. It wasn't a lot of teaching at this point. It wasn't even an argument. It was something so direct and so personal that a look in the eye and an invitation was all it took to light that fire. But Daniel wasn't there yet. So he's like, "Slowed, slow down, Philip, please." Nazareth, Nazareth was like the lowliest neighborhood in the lowliest area. It would be like crying out, "Hey, bro, I found a leader. It's Josh, Joe's kid from Peoria." <laughs> what? <laughs> so Philip doesn't try to describe all. He just like, "Okay, look, you just gotta come and see." <laughs> there it is again, that invitation to come and see. You can just feel John, the storyteller, hoping that we're starting to experience this personally. Don't you wanna come and see? I do. Here again, Jesus, as always, is ahead of everyone. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him. Again, don't race by those kinds of statements. When you see Jesus do anything, stop for a minute and just think about it. <clears throat> Wasn't that Nathanael kind of, oh, there he is. You know, Jesus is ahead, he's ahead of the game. He sees Nathanael coming towards him. And I love this glimpse into Jesus. And now I just let my imagination be wildly a little bit. You know, he's sitting there wherever he is. Maybe he's at his campsite or maybe on a rock or a tree stump. Or maybe he's walking slowly on a path. And he sees Nathaniel coming towards him. And I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Maybe Jesus felt. Maybe is thinking, oh, Philip is so excited. He's so cute." Maybe he's thinking, "I'm so glad to see Nathaniel. I can't wait to look. I can't wait to see the look in, this, in Nathaniel's face when I tell him this wild thing I'm going to tell him." Mm-hmm. He sees us before. That's the point. And there's that anticipation in Jesus of meeting us. I bet Nathaniel was probably still arguing with Andrew, who was probably they were just probably walking silently <laughs> down the path. No. Andrew's probably, or, uh, yeah, Andrew's probably talking way too, I'm sorry, Philip, gosh. I gotta get my, uh, um, full screen. Philip is probably talking way too fast and energetically. He's probably so excited, you know, he's kind of coming out of a sandals. What's gonna happen? Simon got a new name. Well, Jesus does not disappoint. Maybe Jesus stands up or steps forward to greet Nathaniel. Maybe he takes him by the shoulders, looks into his eyes. And then he says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, who it, there is no deceit. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> the was like, this is wild. <laughs> now, we have to unpack this a little bit, because Jesus is saying something to Philip that opens up all the circuits. Behold. Look. That's a, an emphasis. Jesus is saying, now, here's a guy. You can hear the joy in Jesus' voice. You can see Jesus seeing Nathanael, which is what behold literally means. Look at this guy. That makes me feel good when somebody says that, and it's positive. <laughs> a true Israelite, an Israelite indeed. In other words, this guy is what being a part of Israel is all about. And isn't just that exactly what these young men want to hear more than anything else? That's what animates them as young men. They want to be whatever it means to be a man of Israel. That's what they wanted more than anything, to belong to that long heritage, members of that covenant, heirs of that promise. Unique and special to God to take their place in that as young men and here Jesus looks right into his eyes and he says look you're exactly what I'm talking about now the next one in whom there is no deceit well for those of us who know the story of Israel you know that Jacob one of the patriarchs one of the creators of Israel was known exactly for this trait alright until God dealt with it so Jesus is saying something like yeah you're a sign of my transforming power and we're going to get back to this Jacob thing in a moment but you can see that Nathaniel is totally shocked and he's not thinking anymore about can anything good come out of Nazareth that's, he's in wild territory now he's asking a different kind of question he's like how do you know me? that's a great question Now, isn't that the sort of question that you would like to ask ask Jesus? It's so personal. I'm just Steve Engstrom. I've got no connection to any of this. And so how is it that you know me? I'm so far from Israel's history and all these Bible stories. How is it, Jesus, that you know me or even care? But Jesus always has more to give so it always gets better. Jesus opens up possibilities for Nathaniel that he could never have imagined in his wildest dreams. Jesus' dreams are always wilder. He says, Philip, before Andrew even called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. I don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree and what Jesus saw. It's certainly a sort of a miracle that impresses Nathaniel, but... I also wonder if it's even more. Was Jesus maybe connecting to something that Nathanael was dreaming about or concerned about as he sat under that fig tree? I wonder. I wonder if there's a personal spark between the two of them because maybe they each knew something about that. Well, it was enough to make Nathanael a believer. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Again, all these words. They're, They're big words. we can go to the dictionary and we can read about them but what's interesting to me is that these words are great and Nathaniel was probably saying more than he knew and Jesus says oh oh I'm all that and I'm so much more he says you are going to see great things Nathaniel. you are going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man oh it's getting wild again This is a quote from Jacob's story, that troublesome kid, probably the same age as these guys, who's starting to grow up and become a father of the nation of Israel. Jacob was on a journey to find a wife, and he was sleeping out in the open air, and he had this vision of a ladder connecting his place with God's place. And he sees God standing over him, along with his angels ascending and descending. And God reaffirmed his promise to Jacob that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God said to Jacob, I will be with you and I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. And Jesus is saying to Nathanael, you're a part of that. It's funny that Nathan calls Jesus the Son of God and King of Israel, and he can't possibly really fathom all that his words mean. He's saying much more than he knows. On the flip side, here's Jesus saying words that we can hardly fathom, not because he's saying more than he knows, but probably he's saying a lot less than he knows, and he always has more to say, always has more to share. I mean, we're, we've gone from what good thing can come to Nazareth to now I'm into Jacob's story with angels ascending and descend. That's a lot of ground to cover. Can we possibly imagine what God has in store for us? Well, Paul doesn't think so, and he quotes David's Psalm 31 to the unruly Corinthian church What no eye hath seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We're Philip. Jesus seeks us out. He sees us sitting under our fig tree, whatever that fig tree may be. He sees the life we're living. He sees the dreams we have, the hopes we long for, the sadness we feel, the pain we experience, the things we remember or the things that we can't seem to forget. And he not only sees, but he knows what it's like. That's the whole wild thing about God becoming flesh. But Jesus isn't just an empathizer. He's the one who has come to make things whole again. Which is to say that he knows who we are and he knows what we will be with him. You know that that fig tree has an awful lot of symbolic power in Israel's poetry. Nathanael wasn't the first Israelite that God found under a fig tree. Here's what the prophet Hosea says. And this is God speaking. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. And now from those early figs, God is gathering a harvest of renewed Israelites. Because after all, that's the true call of Jesus' twelve disciples. They are the foundation of the renewed nation that would fulfill God's covenant promise. Here's what Jesus says in chapter 19, verse 28 of Matthew. Jesus says to his 12 disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's wild. Nathanael could not possibly make himself into the sort of person that would judge Israel in the new world. I doubt he could really take it all in when he heard Jesus say that. But that's what Jesus sees. And that's what he knows about us. He sees us yesterday, today, and forever. He sees Nathanael sitting under the fig tree, and he also sees him sitting on the throne judging the nation of Israel in the new world. That's what he sees when he sees Philip, and Nathaniel, rather. Well, he sees us sitting here this morning in Church of the Redeemer in Annapolis, and he also sees us judging angels. Did you know that's what Paul told the unruly Corinthian church? Yes, you will judge angels, he said. Uh, That's something to think about. What I mean by rewilding is this. Don't try to smooth it all over. The Gospels are meant to destabilize us just a little bit to give us a lifetime of conversation with God. Not because we can figure them out, but because the stories ask us to keep coming and keep seeking and keep experiencing the look of Jesus' face when he's looking at us and sees us And he says things like, you're a chip off the old block. I have such things in store for you. You're going to see great things. We are meant to be loved. We're meant to be known. We're meant to believe. That's why Jesus came to us. That's the epiphany. We're in the epiphany season. It's the unveiling of Jesus to you. And it's the unveiling of you to Jesus. Rewilding means letting the wild animals return back again. That's what rewilding means. And Jesus is not a wild animal in the sense that he avoids us or threatens us. But maybe your spiritual ecosystem's just been a little too tamed. Maybe your spiritual ecosystem hasn't seen the presence of the Lamb of God for a while, or the Lion of Judah, or the Holy Spirit Dove. the shadow of his wings that we talked about in the Psalms today. In his book, Salvation on Sand Mountain, journalist Dennis Covington describes the journey in and out of a snake-handling, a holiness Pentecostal community in the Appalachian Mountains. Talk about wild. Though it sounds shocking at first, it's a very moving and graceful account of Covington's encounter with deeply faithful, resilient, and enchanting believers. And as Covington's relationship with the these kind of insular mountain people, deepens, they become more open to him. He becomes more vulnerable with them. And they start testing the boundaries of their commitments and their beliefs together. Covington's own faith is surprisingly renewed in the process. And his spiritual roots deepen. But they don't just deepen into the snake handling community. They deepen even deeper than that into his native Baptist soil. He was raised as a Baptist kid. And so there comes a time for a separation from that small community that had such a powerful impact on him. And that's the story that's told, is the movement in and out of. I highly recommend the book. It's one of my favorites. But the final paragraph is deeply moving to me, and I was reminded of it while meditating on Jesus' invitation to Nathaniel in our Gospel reading today. There, Jesus approaches Nathaniel with an astonishing familiarity that's going to change Nathaniel's life forever. He seeks him out. In Covington's description, his faith journey through this intense, urgent, aching power <clears> of <throat> snake handling Pentecostalism led him finally to remember the simpler grace and the quieter love of his Father. He ends it like this It's late afternoon at the lake. The turtles are moving closer to shore. The surface of the water is undisturbed, an expanse of smooth gray slate. Most of the children in my neighborhood are called home for supper by their mothers. (coughs) But I was always called home by my father. And he didn't do it the customary way. He walked down the alley all the way to the lake. If I was close, I could hear his shoes on the gravel before he came into sight. If I was far, I would see him across the surface of the water, emerging out of the shadows and into the gray light. He would stand with his hands in his pockets of his windbreaker while he looked for me. This is how he got me home. He always came to the place where I was before he called my name. Well said. It reminds me of how Jesus approached Nathaniel. I think you'd like to approach us this morning in the same way. Amen. Amen.